And we're back on KUCI's Justice or Just Us. Well, today we are going to grow where we are. That's right. We don't need a farm to cultivate a garden and produce delicious vegetables or raise beautiful flowers. The art of urban gardening is in the use of such materials as tires, cardboard, old fencing, and many other discarded items that fill the urban landscape. For example, old tires are good for raised flower beds and excellent for root crops like potatoes. Good to know. Of course, besides being aesthetic and fun, there are environmental and economic benefits to urban gardening, and it's a great way to protest the privatization of land and food. My guest this morning is Eugene Cook. Eugene has been growing food and supporting sustainable community projects for over 15 years. He's the former technical director of Food Forestry International in Los Angeles. Today, Eugene manages crop production for Truly Living Well Natural Urban Farms in Atlanta, and he's taking a lead role in developing the agriculture and environmental curriculum with Pearl Academy Environmental Institute in Georgia. He's a natural and inspiring speaker in the local food movement. His gardens are feeding families from D.C. to Kenya to Los Angeles. Tomorrow night, Eugene will host a workshop on urban gardening at The Road Less Traveled in Santa Ana. But uh, you can catch a sneak preview of uh, his workshop on urban gardening. Uh, let's uh, begin by uh, telling our listeners why the need for urban gardening. I mean, if I need vegetables, can I just go to the local uh, giant chain supermarket? Yes, possibly you can. Um, the interesting thing, Jared, about the type of work you're doing here on Justice or Just Us is that you're acknowledging a larger circle than just yourself. So when we speak about the, necess the necessity for urban agriculture, it's because what has happened in certain areas of the city nationwide is that where there are a large population of native people, indigenous people, um, brown people, certain investors have decided that it would be too dangerous to put in a Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods or any other type of health food store right in that area or even just a regular supermarket in that area. So when you look into those particular sections of the city or town, you see that there's liquor stores, there are little uh, food marts that are connected to gas stations, and those become the food outlets for the people living in that area. There's an abundance. I'm sorry. There's a, there's an abundance of uh, fast food chains in uh, urban environments, but uh, as you said, it's hard to find a Trader Joe's, a Whole Foods, or uh, you know things of that nature. And the thing about that, Jared, is that so that that still deals with the access, but in those areas, you also see that they're rich in vacant lots and spaces where we can have uh, access to growing things with lights, with trapping water off of buildings, different things like this, and that way we can grow natural food right where we are. So the kind of dichotomy that has been taught to us from day one uh, in grade school that uh, you're either a city dweller or you're kind of uh, a rural farmer uh, need not be the case. One can live in uh, an urban environment and still uh, get one's hands dirty by uh, engaging in, in agriculture. Yes, absolutely. The truth of the matter is that we're all earth dwellers, and the cities are a creation of man's imagination. But the truth 
and the, the truth can be they can be seen anywhere, whether you're on the farm or whether you're in uh, an urban environment. Is you can find a piece of earth where we can put our feet on the ground and we can clean that and nurture that, and it will definitely do what it, it, it has always done, which is produce abundantly. Abundance is the law of nature. This idea of lack is a creation of economists and man for profit. All right, well, let's look at some of the benefits of urban gardening, and then I want to find out how you got involved in, in urban gardening. But, you know, so, okay, so there aren't Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or the like in, uh, in a lot of inner-city neighborhoods, um, but so what? Isn't it just easier to go and to get uh, a, a head of lettuce at a local supermarket? What are some of the... Uh, I, I guess, the political or economic or even health benefits uh, of urban gardening? That's a great question, Jared, because the, all of them are covered. The political benefits are um, a, a real, true sense of control in your own life um, and under being able to dictate and grow things that are specific to your family, specific, specific to your culture, specific to recipes that are passed on generations and generations, and that food is clean because you know what we're putting in it or on it um, or not putting in it or on it when we're growing it as far as pesticides and, and petrochemical fertilizers and things of that nature. The, um, the economic is it's not having to be transported 1,500 miles, right? And when things are transported 1,500 miles, then obviously they're having to be picked prior to being ripe. And what nature will do is provide the soil and as a, as a refrigerator because as long as you have a fruit that is on a tree and it doesn't get picked, then it's going to be okay. It's not going to rot. But once we pick it, it goes through the process of being disconnected from that link of divine energy that goes through the whole system, and it, it starts to decay. So things are being picked way before they're ripe, and they're already going through the decaying process as they're being transported to us. And then we eat them, and though they may have fiber, they may have water in them, they have no energy or vitality or very little. It has started to be diminished. Um, so that actually moved into the health aspects of it also. The idea that we are growing something close to us, these are living organisms. And the whole entire planet is living. So as we start to give care to that and to that plant, it starts to recognize who we are by voice, by intention, and it starts to alter its own composition to benefit us best. You know, you've raised so many issues, and it was just such a great, concise answer. I mean, for one, you've got the environmental aspects. I mean, it's it's so interesting that one could go to one of these these big chain uh, supermarkets. I'm, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, your nice organic independent uh, stores. We've got a few here in Orange County, but, uh, you know, the, the, the big supermarkets and you get, you know, tomatoes that are grown in, you know, Guatemala or, you know, I'm making up some, some place, but you're, you're thinking you could grow these locally and, mm. you know, how much petrol is used uh, to transport these things back and forth, plus all of the packaging. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of the times tomatoes are sold in, you know, the plastic cellophane wrapping if you're at the grocery store, if they're like the little cherry tomatoes or even at, uh, at a place like Trader Joe's. So environmentally, uh, it seems to be, um, 
to be a great idea. And then, of course, as you mentioned, you know, you don't know what you're putting in your body, even if it's uh, even if it's it's an apple. I find it interesting. Uh, you know, I, I am vegan, and when I tell my students about this, they, they always question, well, what kind of stuff are you putting in your body? And then I see they've got a Mountain Dew or something on their desk, <laughs> and I pick it up, and I read the first four ingredients, and I say, you know, what the heck is a mono, carbo, whatever? And they have no clue. And so I say, so this idea that you don't know what you're putting in your body isn't, you know, they, they don't put two and two together, and it seems mm. like with an, with an urban garden, you're in control. Absolutely, and that control is the is exactly the feeling that um, helps to liberate people. Uh, one of the most interesting things that I've seen that has happened recently is when we deal with uh, Mrs. Michelle Obama. Right, um, she has done something that many of the the I would say corner revolutionaries that that I know haven't even done, which is she has planted up her workspace and her living space with food and is eating it and serving it to other people. And that is de- deserving of a Nobel Peace Prize for inspiration alone. Cer- certainly more, th- more than, uh, than escalating a war, but uh, there you Absolutely. go. Absolutely, <laughs> especially because it is, it's actually doing something that it's, it's reminiscent of the Victory Gardens that were initiated years ago because of war. So she's done it in the same time period and in the same way without really kind of contradicting, um, I guess, these other political movements. It's a very quiet but very important and humble thing to do. And that's th- those, it's those kinds of acts when, when people are in large, in the public eye, it's those kind of acts that will inspire millions of people. And, you know, one of the last uh, benefits, I mean, certainly it also liberates us from dependency on, uh, <laughs> you know, these big corporate chains that uh, really are not in the business of providing healthy food. They're in the business of providing, uh, uh, of profiting. So whether they, they make their profit by selling, you know, sugary cereals to children or whether it's in the uh, the profit of selling produce, they really don't care. And so there's kind of getting liberated from the large chains. But I think one of the other benefits that um, is often overlooked, but you, you touched upon it, when you grow your own food, you, you get not only in touch with, uh, back in touch with the environment, but, you know, we Americans are so alienated from the whole food production process, which is one of the reasons why, you know, why I uh, am vegan. I think if, if people saw more how animals are treated on the farms, they'd, they'd think twice, but the same could be said about farm workers who, absolutely, you know, who pick crops and work uh, in excruciating conditions and long hours, you know, the same how we drink a cup of coffee and are completely alienated from the people elsewhere who are um, picking the coffee beans. When we grow our own food and, and toil, uh, maybe it helps humanize the people that, that bring the, the produce to our plate. I think that's a, a very important uh, point, Jared, because the three-quarters of the population of the planet Earth to th- at this present time is involved in agriculture, and that's the truth. And the majority of us still do it by hand. But because so many of our experiences are localized to uh, North America or the United States, we have a very skewed sense of reality when it comes to many things, but definitely when it comes to our relationship with food and with nature. And 
the idea that these mega farms um, under plastic are all over the planet is simply not true. Mm. You know, um, all over the planet, people are still working the land, and they still know whether the moon is waxing or waning, and they still know to save their seeds. They still pay attention to when the rain comes. And these things, as you were saying about humanizing the process, they also humanize us. A lot of the reasons why we are having so much conflict is literally based on what we are ingesting. There are people like David Wolf and Dr. Jewel Pukram who have both uh, talked about this, and, of course, um, the Gerson family that are doing amazing healing works through uh, eating just what you're talking about, Jared, a diet that is clean so that you're not, when we start to ingest death, what can we expect our body to replicate? Hmm. I want to remind listeners that are in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Eugene Cook about uh, urban gardening. So let's let's get into uh, a little bit more specifics. First of all, how did you uh, discover uh, urban gardening? Uh, by uh, necessity. Um, my mother, Carol Cook, is a, uh, her, our, fa- our family on my mother's side, the Pattersons, were farmers in Kansas, and they own acres and acres and acres, and um, the bloodline on that side is a really amazing mix of African and uh, Native Americans. So my grandfather, when I would go visit them, you know, throughout my youth during the summers, I'd be on an uh, 80-acre farm, and they were doing everything, you know. Of course, they had a small garden for personal use close to the house and then acres and acres of wheat and corn and things like this that they were selling off. And they also had the animals and a pond and a well. And it was a very natural part of my experience that I never um, saw as anything special. I didn't realize it was anything special until much later. But where I grew up was actually in Cerritos, California, um, my parents kept a garden in the backyard, and it was my and my sister's uh, responsibility to care for that garden to make sure that we had food. And it was a wonderful way to keep me involved after school before they got home from work, um, which kept me busy and occupied so that I couldn't just run the streets with, with different friends or acquaintances that ended up doing other things. And I found the intensity of the colors and of all the different life forms all of that as a child was it was um, very captivating. And as I grew to a man and became a father, it was a very natural thing to do. I, I just, they say, you know, if you, the way most of us parent, the way we were parented. So I just continued the process of growing food. And then other people pointed out, as they would come and visit the house, they pointed out that it was dynamic and different to have food growing in your backyard. And that's when the light kind of went on. Last night, uh, we had a chance to speak, and uh, you talked about some experiences uh, with, I think it was a, was it a grade school in Crenshaw? We talked a little bit about, I guess we could call it guerrilla gardening, that's G-U-E. Talk a bit about how uh, urban gardening um, is a way of reclaiming public space and kind of how it sometimes skirts the the boundaries of, uh, you know, conventionality or acceptability Mm. yes what we were speaking about was a project the food forestry project at Crenshaw High School and that project was headed up by uh, an amazing man named uh, Adonijah Miyamura L and Adonijah pulled me in at about the year 2000 and by that time the garden at Crenshaw was fairly well established 
and he brought me in, and we worked really well together because of my background in visual art and and um, architecture. So we started to design the space more. And the thing about um, guerrilla gardening is that we must realize that we are the public, and public schools, public parks, these public places that that we send our children to and that we go to and that our funds, our tax dollars go to, they belong to us. And when we see that they're being neglected or used in a way that is not in harmony with the best interests of our community, it is our responsibility to take action. And everyone is different. Some people take the action of organizing the neighborhood councils and, and meeting with the school administrators, and that's great. And then there's some who take action by planting seeds. So one way or the other, people are going to voice what they want to see changed. And if it's directed in a positive way, then it can really bring amazing results. Because there's a Zen, a Buddhist Zen saying that um, I repeat oftentimes in different gatherings, which is anyone can count the number of seeds in an apple, but no one can count the number of apples in a seed. And this is the law, again, of abundance. And when we start to plant trees, fruit trees, in spaces where there's already irrigation, where people are paying somebody to mow the lawn every couple weeks, and you're paying to turn this water on, and this is not generating food for massive amounts of people that we know are unemployed and homeless or who are just um, young children who happen to have terrible diets and are starting to develop chronic ailments, it's irresponsible not to plant fruit trees. And when we plant the fruit trees, they're going to yield for generations. And it only takes a certain amount of care for the first two or three years, and then that tree is going to establish itself because just like you and I, it has a energy that is constantly moving towards life and creativity. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the specifics. We don't want to give away all of uh, your secrets as you'll be uh, hosting a workshop tomorrow night at uh, The Road Less Traveled in Santa Ana, and we'll give more information later. But um, let's start with some of the basics of, uh, I guess, creating an urban garden. Uh, how much space does one need? What, uh, what does one need to do to get started? What we normally do, Garrett, um, uh, the business that I run is called Gebsite, G-E-B-S-I-T-E. And what we normally do, people will call us to um, have consultations at their home or at their school. And when it comes to a home garden, the things that we want to talk about are how many people we're planning to feed and um, how much time you have. I suggest that in any urban gardening situation for people who are starting out, that you start small. Oftentimes people, you know, do the research online or they read a couple books and they get very, very um, encouraged and motivated, which is great. So we still should start small so that we can get used to the process. You can do something, in, people do container gardens who live in apartments, but uh, if you had a 10 by 10 space, especially in Southern California, you can grow food year-round and um, start beginning to incorporate growing vertically as well as growing low on the ground. So vertical crops would be things that would trellis up maybe a fence like cucumbers or snow peas, um, and then you can grow things low to the ground like um, different herbs, chamomile and yarrow that can be used, mint, um, root crops can be grown, carrots, beets, that all of these can be grown in a companion situation that allows for abundance and it also allows for diversity, which is going to protect 
the garden itself. And all of these uh, can be grown in the Southern California climate? Absolutely, absolutely. The beautiful thing about Southern California that um, I guess that the, the agribusiness knows is that basically two-thirds of the food in, in uh, the United States is grown in California. And so obviously if we drive off the five freeways, we've all seen these huge, huge mega farms, that we're in the right climate. And the most America's untapped and unused farmland, the only unused farmland left is front yards and backyards in America. And we can do it. We can grow plenty of things in plenty of climates and begin to eat seasonally eat what is in season for our area, and our body, again, becomes even that more in tune to the specifics of our local situation. We're speaking with Eugene Cook. We're talking about urban gardening. Uh, he's going to be giving a presentation tomorrow night at The Road Less Traveled. Uh, you could ch- check out his website at, uh, it's G-E-B-S-I-T-E, is that correct? That's correct, gebsite.com. And uh, now let's take a look at, um, you know, you talk about some of the uh, discarded items that can be used. When I work on, I've got a little flower bed that uh, I work on, and I go to the local, uh, the local nursery. Uh, some of that stuff can get pretty expensive, but uh, it seems that what you're suggesting is that you needn't rely on all of these manufactured, you know, items. Uh, items from kind of the nursery or the gardening industry, you could use um, kind of household discarded items. Could you give some examples? We talked in the intro about old tires, but what else? Um, one of the best things that I've noticed in, in, in the urban areas is that there is always fencing. There's always these, these uh, borders that are set up. And what we try to do is make sure that um, in the spirit of uh, Bill Mollison's permaculture, make sure that everything has at least two or three functions inside the garden space before we put it there. So if we have a fence, it serves as a border, but it also serves as a trellis that can, as we spoke about before, can grow vining crops up. Um, when it comes to tires, they do, they form nice beds. What we do in Georgia, uh, where I do a lot of urban gardens, is there's lots of trees in Georgia. So anytime we have fallen trees or fallen limbs, clean those up real nice, and we use those as a natural border system around beds. Not only is it beautiful, but it begins to, it's like a time-release fertilizer because we know since it's natural wood, it is going to decompose and go back into the earth. Another one of the major things that we want to have in a garden is rocks because the mineral, the vitamins and minerals that people are, are taking as, in the form of supplements, the only reason those are necessary is because the ground that agribusiness is using has been so devitalized and so stripped, and the things that they took out first were the stones. And the stones are basically the skeleton of the planet, and they are the time-release minerals. When these stones are placed in our garden and the rain runs over these stones time and time again, the water runs over the stones, the wind breaks down these stones, that's where the magnesium, the calcium, the zinc, the iron all the trace minerals that we need in our body for a healthy system, that's how that gets in there. And now here's the, uh, I guess, the, the $30,000 question, or we could put whatever value, or maybe it's a <laughs> invaluable question, but uh, when we talk about organic, when I plant things in, in my garden, and we're just talking about you know just everyday plants and, and foliage and whatnot, I don't use any of the, the pesticides or, or any of that stuff. And yet I get 
bugs that really chew away at the leaves. I mean, and sometimes really, really badly. Um, are there, what are natural ways of um, having an organic garden that doesn't require pesticides, that doesn't require killing off some of the, uh, you know, a- aspects of the food chain, of the insect food chain or whatnot? How does one maintain an organic uh, garden without killing off either your own crops or killing off, you know, insects and whatnot? That, that is a, a great question. I'll, I'll do my best to approach it from a couple different things. First thing is there's an ethnobotanist by the name of Dr. Kwaku Ando, and he's written a book called Biblical Mana a couple years back, and I had the pleasure of meeting him in Atlanta, and he came out to our farm, and he was looking around, and he said, mm, uh, my business partner was a bit... Um, uh, maybe embarrassed by some of the crops that were being eaten. And he looked around, he looked around at everything, and then most importantly, he looked at the soil, then he looked at us and he said, expect to lose 10%. Always mm. expect to lose 10%. Um, most of us, because we have a disconnection with nature, we're used to the uniformity and and consistency of, you know, our cell phones and our shoes and all of this kind of thing, but those are manufactured goods. Any human being that begins the process of keeping and tending the garden, which is Genesis 2.15, before the Ten Commandments where there was only one, keep and tend the garden, we're doing it to for not only our benefit but for the benefit of the bugs and the animals also. So that's the first thing. Expect to lose 10%, and as long as it's only 10%, then you're actually doing your duty, and that's fine. If it becomes more than 10% of infestation, then it's a soil issue. It's not... The people putting uh, pesticides on it is the same thing as this really uh, sickness care system that we have going on in America as far as the hospitalization, dealing with symptom instead of dealing with the root reality. The soil is the immune system for the garden. So when you start to see plants being attacked, then if you have a row of cabbage, for example, and one cabbage is being attacked but all the rest aren't, then you leave the cabbage that's being attacked because that's the weak cabbage. It's, it's, it's attracting the insects, and those insects will stay there, and they won't jump to the other ones. But if all the cabbages are being affected, then it's time to start increasing the compost and the organic material around them on the soil. That is the immune system of the plant, and the plant will then get stronger. The other thing that we talk about in the workshops is companion planting. And what that is is uh, the study of knowing which plants work well together and encourage health in one another, protect each other. Plants will protect each other either by um, blossoming and attracting a natural, uh, another known, um, uh, what do they call that, <laughs> predator? Right. Of a Yeah, of an of a, of a in pest, insect, or they will develop a smell, they'll release a smell either through the roots or through the flower that also um, helps to protect the plant that they're next to. So oftentimes with herbs, we plant borage. I mean, excuse me, with greens, we plant borage, or with tomatoes, we plant marigolds. And these are the, some of the basics of companion planting. The best way to have a healthy garden is massive amounts of composting of organic matter and a biodiverse garden that has flowers, herbs, vegetables, and fruit trees. So it's, uh, 
it's important then for listeners who are interested in starting uh, an urban garden to, to, to really spend some time. You, know, you said before you want to start small, and it, it just kind of reminds me of people who decide that uh, – you know, they have a New Year's resolution and they think that they're going to, uh, you know, just go from eating really unhealthy to suddenly having this incredible diet overnight or people who think that they're going to just stop smoking cold turkey or whatnot. You really want, if you want to um, have a successful thriving garden, you really need to study and take it small and kind of go through the process and not have kind of the urban arrogance of thinking that, you know, gardening is just something that you could just jump into without understanding the complexity of nature. That's true. And, and, and because we're all human beings and we like to feel a, a sense of accomplishment, start with things that are easy and guaranteed. Radishes in the cool season, they'll always pr- produce and you'll feel successful. Any of your herbs, um, planted herbs as far as mint, lavender, uh, rosemary, all of those are going to come up with no problem. In the summertime, cucumbers, yellow squash, tomatoes, these things are very easy to grow, and when we get the sense of accomplishment, then we're more likely to stay involved and stay interested. If the first thing we start trying to grow is something like Brussels sprouts or asparagus, then uh, that's going to slow us down because they take a, a bit more attention and a bit more time. Well, we are just about out of time, but if you could uh, give our listeners maybe uh, a little preview, what can they expect tomorrow night at The Road Less Traveled? Well, first I'd like to say that Delilah and everybody there at the Road Less Traveled there are an amazing group of people. Um, they've always welcomed, welcomed us in. And uh, I work in partnership with The Inside Out, which is a collective of amazing women who are doing healing uh, works throughout Southern California. You can check them out on theinsideout.biz, B-I-Z. And there there is some insight about what we do. So what we're doing on Friday this time is uh, we're basically bringing back people. This is our fourth gathering there at the Road Less Traveled. And we're bringing back people, and we're going to actually watch a series of short films around the food justice issue and then have a conversation. going to be very informative but uh, much more of a social event for people to start exchanging ideas. And then I'll speak and answer questions, and we'll also always have some wonderful take-home material for people to stay inspired and get ready for the spring. The uh, address of The Road Less Traveled is 2202 North Main Street in Santa Ana. That's 2202 North Main Street. Or you can give a call at 714-836-8727, 714-836-8727, or check it out at roadlesstraveledstore.com. Eugene Cook, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I look forward to meeting you in person tomorrow. Oh, thank you. It'll be good to see you, Jared. I appreciate it. Justice or just us. There you go. Take care. Peace. And uh, we will be back after more from from Alparosi here on Justice or Just Us.